Hello, this is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I'm your host for this week, Paul Jaisley, filling in for our intrepid leader, Mike Rappin. Luckily, I'm not alone in that task. I'm joined by two fantastic people and fantastic comic book fans, Kate Scotchless. Hello. And Kara Shimboski. Hey. I hope I said that right. I know we just went over that <laughs> before we hit record. Um, so I'll ask the question that Mike asks every week. How are you both doing? How was your Thanksgiving and how were comic books? We'll start with you, Kara. These are the first words I have spoken in four <laughs> days. <laughs> I got laryngitis for Thanksgiving this year. And, oh no, it uh, came early. <laughs> so my voice is very feeble, but I'm here. So I'm very excited about that. Um, in terms of comics this week, not having a voice gave me many excuses for not having social interaction with people, which <laughs> meant that I had time to read things that I haven't been reading, which means I got to read the entirety of the secret history of Wonder Woman in like one setting, which I had received for Christmas the year it came out and haven't actually read. So but now I have. Um, and that's the book by historian Jill Lepore, where she delved into the the secret backstory of how Wonder Woman got made by its creator, um, William Moulton Marston, but there's more to it than just him. It's also the way that he lived his life in this like polyamorous marriage situation and how he was involved with and surrounded by uh, suffragette, suffragettes and feminists from first wave feminism and like the central thesis of the book is really arguing that there hasn't just been waves of feminism, that it's always kind of been there and been connected and that Wonder Woman is like the clearest um, point to that argument that it has just been this continuous flow because Wonder Woman came from all of these ideas of the late 1800s of women getting the right to vote and women having more control over their bodies and the birth control movement because um margaret sanger who was this leader and main advocate of that movement was the aunt of one of the women that marston was involved with for the majority of his life um so like how all these influences played into the creation of wonder woman and Mm -hmm. then how wonder woman as like part of the comic book world influenced some of the second wave feminists in the 60s and 70s. Um, And one of the things that struck me about reading this book, besides getting to know a little bit more about Wonder Woman, who obviously just had a very successful screen debut, thank God, um, (laughs) was like how depressing it is that women's rights have not really progressed in a century. Like things that they were talking about in the 20s are still things that we're talking about now and kind of getting to see this historian's perspective of feminism in America through the lens of Wonder Woman just kind of showed me how things really haven't changed in a lot of ways. And that was like super depressing, but also like kind of showed me like, oh my God, it's only been a century and Mm -hmm. all of these, all of these things have happened and like, we can only go forward from here. We just need to kind of like get everyone back on that bandwagon of equal rights for women. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so very interesting, very comic related. Yeah. I, I remember reading 
a big chunk of that book when it first came out. I haven't finished it, but you've encouraged me to go back and finish it now to see uh, the rest of the story. So, Is this prose or graphic novel? Prose. It sounds really interesting. It's very fascinating, and I was most fascinated to learn that the Marstons and their polyamorous family lived in my hometown while the kids were growing up so now i like really want to go back home and find where they <laughs> lived interesting interesting yeah, it's always interesting to read a book about comics by someone who's not connected to the industry at all because the author's a historian so she doesn't have any allegiance to the character or the publishers it's just here's the facts of the character's creation that's kind of what i appreciated about it yeah that it was really interesting there is like this one disdainful but kind of true line that took me aback at the end where um the author's voice kind of really came through and was like well there's just the these things haven't been connected because the history of like the birth control movement and feminism the history of wonder woman and the history of the lie detector test because that's something that marston also invented have always been researched by people just really interested in those things specifically so she was like there is very little interest in feminism from comic fans Mm. and lie detector fans and i was like ouch but also you are not wrong yeah (laughs) so that was that was a moment where i was just kind of like ouch but also mm, perspective And something that I also appreciated, because a couple years ago, I, I can't remember the title right now, but I read a book about the history of Wonder Woman that was like totally focused on her evolution or devolution as a character in terms of like the different creative teams that worked on her and what their visions were or were not. And the thing that I most came away f- with that book from was that uh, Robert Kaniger, who wrote the majority of Wonder Woman stories in like the 50s to 60s, just like did not understand what she was about at all and made her like, she went from like this super awesome kind of kinky undertone feminist when Marston was writing her to like, oh, Steve Trevor, I just want to marry you so much and like answering like love letters and going on space adventures and mostly just being kind of like a weird damsel in distress in her own book. Mm -hmm. Like mercifully she survived, but also like what? And I just never really quite liked what Kaniger did to her character. And in The Secret History of Wonder Woman, Jill Lepore, like specifically calls out that Kaniger was like a chauvinist who hated Wonder Woman. And I was like, then who the hell gave him the book? Right? Like, why would you give him the book if he hates the character? And then if he hates the character so much, why would he go about like writing her for over a decade? Like go away. Cause like, cause like, um, Marston's, um, wife who worked with him on so much material and like went with him through school and everything, when he died, she asked to be the new writer of Wonder Woman. And she wrote like this multi-page letter to the editor of DC Comics at the time. And she was like, I am the person who can carry on my husband's vision. And they were like, nope, shrug, <laughs> bye, Kaniger's got it. And she was like, what? Right? Like she knows it <laughs> yeah. so well inside and out. And then they're like, yeah, we're just going to give it to this guy who hates the character for like a decade or two. And she like 
you know, she was like a thesis short of a PhD and yep. she had spent like her whole career as a professional editor. It's like, not like she didn't know what she was doing. So I was just like, really? She had really? lady parts though. And those, right. those, those I mean, women brains, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. That's the, uh, sad history of comics that we are always reminded of, I guess. So, yep. So that was, that was my comic <laughs> experience this week. How about you guys? <laughs> What did you read, Kate? I read a lot because I've been on break. And see, I have two major projects due in like two weeks. But So if it was one week away, I'd be like, guys, I read nothing this week. But when it's that far enough out, then you really read because you're procrastinating. See? So that's <laughs> where I was this week. I read all of Archie Volume 1 in preparation for getting to talk to Kara for the first time. That's the <laughs> one by Mark Wade, Fiona Staples, Annie Wu, and Veronica Fish. So now I understand the references. I can go on Tia and Kara's Twitter and know what's happening. Also, it turns out my comic shop dressed up as the Archie characters, like group cosplay for Halloween. Didn't realize it when I was there. Now I do. So, like, <laughs> everything's coming together. Uh, I really enjoyed Perfect. it. I really like Fiona Staples' art. And I, like, the first issue or second issue, I was like, this is kind of silly. But then by the end, I was like, this is silly and I love it. Give me more. So it worked out. I also finished off X-Men Blue number four through six to finish off that first uh, arc. Except the X-Men books are kind of weird where they're doing like three issue mini arcs. And then those mini arcs are one six issue arc that gets combined into a volume. Anyway, so I did the second three issues. That's Colin Bunn writing with Irma... Okay, this could go on our list. Irma <laughs> Navilla, maybe? It's a colorist, and she does a nice job. But then there's different artists on every issue, and it shows. It's Number four has Julian Lopez. Number five is Julian Lopez and Corey Smith. And then number six is Ray Anthony Height and Ramon Box. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to continue with this book, I don't think. Um, <laughs> I was drawn to it initially by, I really liked McKelvey's uh, fantastic costume redesigns for the team. But then mm -hmm. by the time you get into issue like five, you're getting all these other characters. So it has that X-Men problem of, we're going to like bring in 10 more characters. It'll be cool, right? And you're like, what? No, you need to develop the ones you have. And they're like, no, we don't. It'll be fine. Um so Miss Sinister shows up and she does not have a costume redesign. So like she shows up and you know she's a villain because she's wearing a corset and underwear with thigh high high heel boots. And I'm like, wait, you showed up to a fight in this. And she's like, yeah, we didn't think about redesigning mine. I don't know why we did like everyone else's costumes, but not mine. And I'm like, what? So I don't know. Like, it's not the better X-Men book. There, there are better X-Men ongoings right now that I'm going to read instead but I was glad I finished it out. I also read the first chapter of a manga called The Girl from the Other Side by Nagame, with trans translated by Adrian Beck. It is so weird. It is beautiful. Like, I don't usually like manga art, which I say, like, every time I read a manga and like it. Um, so it's starting to be maybe not true. I think there's just certain styles of manga art I like uh, that I wasn't seeing before. But it's really intricate and beautiful. And the story is basically what if the slim man was actually a cursed human and he adopted a little girl. Like, super creepy and weird. Um, hmm. Like, drawn in that very, very tall, very, very thin. And the only real difference between depictions of the slim man and this character is this character has, like, a 
maybe a, a antelope skull for a head, but is all still very dark and shadowy and not very distinct. And the basic premise is that if you touch one of these cursed uh, people, you too be turned into a monster. You get transformed into the same sort of shit thing. And so people have evacuated villages where there is someone. So they're very ostracized. And so I'm a chapter in, so I don't know much about this story. <laughs> but it feels sure. so far like a pretty heavy metaphor for diseases like AIDS and Ebola that have... Um, public panic and rumors built in around them about what happens and people you know that catch them get really ostracized even if that's not necessarily uh what should be happening in fact it's like never what should be happening um so there's this sweet little girl and this dark creepy creature and i'm excited to keep going with that um and then i also read a graphic novel called pitch black by Yaume Landown and Anthony Horton. And it's about a homeless artist living in the New York City subway tunnels. Um, and it narrates a brief story of how he started living there and what his view of the world is, or rather was. It, this is Anthony Horton, who, and he passed away. Um, it's the story. There isn't much story. It's very short. It's basically, I mean... You, like a paragraph of story but what's notable is the art and i especially like the use of form it the graphic novel itself is shaped like a business envelope so the okay. binding is still on the on the left like a normal graphic novel but it's very short and very long and then when you have depictions and talking about the tunnels and the uh, subway platforms uh it's using the horizontal layout so it's that long long page and it works really well for all these platforms and these deep long tunnels and stuff like that and a few pages of um, horizontal i would say like the journey through memory collages of faces and places and stuff like that because the anthony is narrating basically how he ended up living here and his view of the world that sounds really beautiful the cool thing is also when they flip to the vertical layout for depth, so when he's talking about all the floors above him and you have like the top, the very top of the these, what you have is essentially a two-page spread, but it's very tall and skinny. And the very top will be like the buildings on, you know, above ground. And then he's like six stories underground. So you have the layers of basements and then the subway platform and then below that the subway tunnels and then down him. And it's like very... God, it's very oppressive feeling and that animal sense of being deep in a burrow and it's like he can't get to all that life above him like it's right there but he can't get out of where he is it's a very interesting and well done use of form for art so that was a nice hmm. one probably something that wouldn't translate well to a digital format no i it would definitely right, pick right up yeah pick up the physical and i well, i can actually check right now i don't believe it costs much um yeah, it's a hardcover, but it's only $18. Uh, and oh, your nice. library might have it. That's how I got it. Um, but mm -hmm. it's it's even though it's hardcover, it's uh, cheap because it's very short. Okay. That sounds interesting. I'm fascinated by comics that use the physical format in a way that sort of prevents it from being translated, you know, to, to digital or another medium. Yeah, so, yeah. And it's one of those, I like comics where it you could not achieve the same effect in another medium either. Um, yeah. Like this would not work well as a book or a TV show or whatever. You know, like it's it's very <laughs> grounded in its own medium. How about you, Paul? I read a bunch of comics this week. Um, <laughs> some of them I really enjoyed and some of them were okay. Um, so I finally read Mr. Miracle number four. I think I'm a couple weeks behind on that. 
um, and I really, really enjoyed it. As a big fan of the original Kirby New Gods characters, I really appreciate the way that Tom King and Mitch Garrods are changing or approaching them from a different angle. I think when people want to do a Kirby story, they make it big and bombastic, but they're doing a very small-scale Kirby story. But they're still treating the characters uniquely. I mean, these aren't superheroes. They're gods, and that's the way Kirby intended them. So I like the way that Tom King is portraying the new gods in a unique way. They feel alien and different, but the story isn't this bombastic space opera. It's a very grounded human story, even though it's about gods. So I really appreciate that. The sort of big twist that's revealed in this issue is perfect. I remember an interview where Tom King said he's going to do something with Mr. Miracle that no one had done before, and he nails it in this issue, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, is Big Barda present in this new Mr. Miracle book? Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be reading it. Miss Big Barda is one of my absolute favorite DC characters, and you can't do a Mr. Miracle story without her. And she's great in this issue. She's great in this series. So I might have to check that out then, because I love her so much, and I can remember with clarity when she died during one of DC's late 2000s era events and mm-hmm. then the birds of prey spent an entire issue mourning her in the best way possible and it's one of my favorite comic issues of all time but i'm delighted to know that in this new 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 52 <laughs> she's been resurrected again <laughs> she's back and she's great she's still big she's still barda so yeah i love her so amazing um, i also read doom patrol number nine this was my pick of the week on the last episode and it was great it's uh, I love this book because Gerard Way is really following up the Grant Morrison run, but doing it his own unique spin on it, and it becomes an even more metatextual book. There's a moment in this book where you have these invading robots who are basically forcing characters to fall in love, and they keep saying, I ship it, I ship it, say I love you to each other. So it's this commentary on comic book fandom. Um and then the characters sort of know that they've been rebooted in a weird way. It's great. And then this particular issue, we have the return of Mr. Nobody, who's one of my favorite Doom Patrol villains. And he brings back, in the, in the, original, Doom, uh, in the original Grant Morrison run, he was the leader of the Brotherhood of Dada. In this issue, he brings back the Brotherhood of Nada, which is a whole new group of bizarre supervillains. And I really appreciate this book because describing it is impossible. So you have to read it. I'm sure my descriptions did it no justice. So you should be reading Doom Patrol. I read a handful of the Dark Knight, uh, Dark Knight's Metal tie-ins, like I was talking about on the last episode. I read Batman Lost. Uh, there's like 10 different names listed on the credits, so I'll probably skip it. You can look it up if you want to know who did that one. Um, Batman, The Man Who Laughs, or The Batman Who Laughs, sorry, that's by James Tinian IV, and Riley Rosmo on art. That was pretty fun. But my favorite of the ones I read was Batman the Merciless by Peter Tomasi and Francis Manipal. Peter Tomasi is one of my favorite writers, and obviously Francis Manipal is a fantastic artist. This is one of the prettiest looking books I've read in a long time. And it is sort of a standalone story. I think you could pick this up without actually reading any of the other metal books or tie-ins and enjoy it. It's a book about an alternate reality Batman who loves Wonder Woman so much that when she dies in battle, he takes up the mantle of the god Ares to get revenge. So it's kind of like a character study in Batman, and I really enjoyed it because of that. How many Batman books are going right now? <laughs> uh, well, these them? are all just like, yeah, these are just like one-shots okay. that tie into the DC Metal like miniseries. 
Do you know how many there are? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so the main metal series, I think, is six issues, and then there's two like Batman tie-ins that focus on Batman, the actual character, and then there's like six more one shots that are about alternate reality Batmans. So that's a lot of Batman books. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Can I tell you? You've just reminded me that I actually had a really vivid dream last night in which I was Batman. <laughs> and yeah, this like I've I've had maybe like I love Batman, but I've had only maybe like two Batman related dreams ever. So okay. this was notable. And so last night I was the Batman and I was I like l- was in this fancy apartment and I looked down and noticed that the glass in one of the windows was off somehow so i like leaned down took a picture with my smartphone for like insurance evidence or whatever and then started like <laughs> a very practical slowly, batman <laughs> started like it was like evidence it started like like the window is made of all these little squares of glass so i started like pushing aside the squares and i like knew that catwoman had slipped through here and was like somewhere else in the building so i stuck my head out of this little window box that i had made and i looked down and it was just like the skyscraper like heading down to the street and then i looked up and in the apartment directly above me catwoman's head was just like sticking out of a hole like equal to the size of the one i had made she just like smiled and like turned around and like went back into the building so then i like moved more of the glass like pieces away so that i could like climb up to the next apartment and like figure out what the hell she was doing and so it was just like this really intense like me like scaling the wall and like creeping into the apartment and like coming out at this window at like the top of this elaborate like crown molding around the top and i was like definitely in a very wealthy person's apartment and i was like okay so she's definitely here to steal something but what and it was just like I don't know. It was just like the sensation of wearing a cape and like being aware that i was the batman but like also myself was a very strange sensation I, that's yes we'll have to get dr freud on the case on that one i wonder what dreaming of batman might symbolize <laughs> on that note i also read because of course i had to i read doomsday clock number one uh we talked about this ad nauseum on last week's episode and i was in the shop and it was on the it was on the stands there and i thought you know what i'm just gonna wait for the trade i don't need to buy these single issues and then i noticed that the issue had that lenticular cover and it's Rorschach's face. <laughs> they got you <laughs> exactly they got him a sucker <laughs> And you move the cover and it turns the blob on Rorschach's face turns into the bat symbol and the Superman crest and the Wonder Woman designs. Like, all right, I'm sold. Um, It was a fine comic. I don't... I'm of two minds on Watchmen, obviously, because I think its influence is uh, overstated and its greatness is overstated. But I also read it when I was 15, so it made a pretty big impact on me. So it's a pretty important part of my comic book reading history. So... I, I think that the book may be too reverent to the original because you have Jeff Johns is obviously doing a riff on the original. Um, it's written in Rorschach's first-person style. You have Gary Frank basically doing Dave Gibbons' artwork and the nine-panel grid and all that. But I think the story is more interesting than the formal elements are, and that's opposite of what Watchmen is in my book. Um I don't think it's a sequel as much as it is sort of a celebration of the original. And I guess your enjoyment of Doomsday Clock depends on what you think of the original Watchmen series. So I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to spoil anything or give too much away. I, of course, will be suckered in and be buying the next 11 issues as well. So (laughs) I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Um, 
But yeah, so that's what we read this past week. And then we'll be reading more comics this coming week, I'm wait, assuming. Wait, wait. Yes. I forgot yes. about the actual comic that I read. <laughs> well, oh, no. Okay, tell us what you read. Um, but first, I just want to say that you just gave possibly the most even-handed description of Watchmen I've ever heard. I was so, impressed. Yeah, so usually you. you have to love or hate it, and you are just our level-headed, reasonable person that sees that the gray. That was beautiful. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, I mean, that's, yeah, it's the thing, like, the book changes every time you read it. It's like, yes. when I was 15, it was it was a masterpiece. Now that I'm 35, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's hardly a perfect story, you know? So it changes every time I read it, so... Yeah, it was one of the first graphic novels I ever read, and I had the same kind of response. I was like, what is this magic? And then (laughs) reading it after being a comics reader for quite a few years, it's much different. And I think that you, if you're interested in reading The Doomsday Clock or something like that, if if you don't think that Watchmen is a perfect masterpiece, you'll probably really enjoy any type of riff on it or sequel or follow-up because it's not a sacred cow. It's something that can be toyed with and messed with and putting aside the ethical issues of the way that they treated Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore's, you know, financial interests in the book and the shady business practices DC was did in the history in the wake of Watchmen, if you can ignore that, <laughs> you know, you can enjoy the sort of, you know, different takes on it over the years, I guess. Okay, so super quickly, I read Reggie and Me, which is uh, it's like a five-issue miniseries that Archie Comics did. I know who and Reggie is now. Yay. We did it, team. We did it. <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, Reggie is like Archie's rival historically in Archie Comics. He's like, he plays practical jokes on everybody. He's very egotistical and... He is always trying to score with Midge, who dates Moose, who was like usually portrayed as like the dumb jock. And Midge is like essentially Veronica with short hair and no money. But like, you know, <laughs> we could we could talk for days about how Archie Comics girls are basically just the same, but different hair. But um, so Reggie and me is from the point of view of Reggie's dog, Vader. Mm. It's a little okay. weenie dog that he adopts from a shelter. And Vader, like, is totally on board with Reggie's, like, self-love. He's like, yeah, Reggie's the best. Like, everyone else <laughs> sucks. Like, when people, like, ditch a party Reggie's throwing because Veronica's throwing a bigger one. And Reggie's like, oh, like, haha, I sent that text because I wanted all you losers gone. Vader's, like, in the corner going, yeah, boy, don't let them see you sweat. <laughs> so, Dogs like, are the best hype men. <laughs> so, it's, like, super cute, but also kind of exploring Reggie the character in like a way that shows that he's not like he's not the best person but he still is a person and as a really unabashed Reggie fan I super appreciate this point of view especially because Midge like towards the end starts like trying to set him up with Betty and I like really want Betty and Reggie to get together because I think she'd be really good for him and he like might become less of a jerk if he's with her but like it's fine um so like for that alone I appreciated this book um I almost was not sold on the book because towards the end something bad happens to Vader and it like is presented really bleakly for a while and you're just like what um but like Aside from that, they do some really interesting things. This is, I think, kind of building off on the world that the 
Archie series, Kate, that you just read is building where it's like more updated versions of the characters and more nuanced interpretations of their motivations. Like they actually get a lot into like who Moose is as a character in this also. And he's usually ignored. And what they did with him, I thought was really, really cool to show how like he is a good guy and he's just trying to like do the right thing by everyone. And Reggie like doesn't get that. And so like seeing them being forced together in different situations is super interesting. Huh. So my dad thinks he's hilarious. Over the last like five years, the only comic he knows from growing up is Archie, right? And so every time I talk about comic book stuff or the podcast or comic, you know, like my friend group from comic stuff, he's like, you guys going to read Archie? You're reading some Archie? Like, do you want me to get you an Archie book? Like endless joke you know how dad's jokes just keep going and it's the same joke they just repeat it yeah (laughs) and he laughs and laughs and now i've finally read an archie so i happen to be home for thanksgiving break when i read it so i'm sitting in his living room and he walks in and he he like stops he's like oh my god is that actually an archie (laughs) like it sure is so it it was good the the dad joke came full circle and now hopefully it's done (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Archie's bringing families closer together. I appreciate I love it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we read some comics this past week. We'll be reading more comics this coming week. And comics will be arriving at your local comic shops on Wednesday, the 29th of November. What are you excited to read, Kate? This week, I'm excited to pick up Black Magic number nine. It's the comic by Greg Rucka with art by Nicola Scott. Uh, this is Awakenings 2 Part 3, so we're three issues into the new arc. There was a pretty big hiatus there um, while Rucka worked on other projects and Scott worked on other projects. They think Scott was doing Wonder Woman, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she was. So they both had other things going and they're finally back to this, which is great because I think it's better than the other stuff they're doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say, though, that I'm trade-waiting this arc, uh, so I have not read Parts 1 or 2. But I'm still excited for it coming out because that means the trade is even closer to being in my hands. Um, I decided to trade weight because I think the first arc uh, would have read better if it was I had read it all at once. This is the story of the detective who is also a witch and she's solving a mystery. And it's beautiful and I mean it's Rucka so it's wonderfully written. Um, in this issue, Alex learns the name of one of the enemies and the face of another and Rowan's troubles uh, grow. And Sam Hain and the baby are coming closer. So, like, everything's coming to a head as they do <laughs> when you get to this point in arcs. So, I True. think it'll be great. True. I mean, how could it not be with that team, right? So, yeah. yeah. I totally agree with you with trade, raid, trade waiting on Black Magic. I read the first arc in issues, and it took me a while each issue to, like, get back into it. I think I would have liked to just have dived into that world and stayed there for a while yeah me too and i also um that was one of the comics where every time a new issue came out i really had to go back and fish out my last issue or issue into and reread them to remember what was happening because it's a mystery and so you're getting clues that maybe the character doesn't see but you see and things are coming together in puzzle pieces which when it's been three months since you saw the last one you know like you Mm kind of have Mm -hmm. to go back and look yeah, because I'm reading this in single issues, and I've done the thing where I'll just let them pile up for a couple months, or yeah. get like 
two or three issues piled up and read them all in the go. And yeah, it's a really great story. I really like that Greg Rucka clearly, as with everything he writes, has done his research. Oh, like it's always. not a hokey version of <laughs> a witchcraft or anything. It feels very uh, serious and treated with respect. How about you, Kara? This week there is a Labyrinth special coming like out. Like the movie? And, like the movie. And <laughs> I was a latecomer to the Labyrinth thing. Like I didn't see it till I was in college. So I didn't have the childhood nostalgia attached to it. And when I saw it, I was just kind of like, oh, this movie's kind of weird. It's very weird. But it's a movie where the world building is so good that it's stuck in my brain. And I recently rewatched it and I was still like, this movie is not good. But the world, <laughs> the world keeps sticking in my brain. What sticks in my brain is that Dance Baby Dance song. It's really, <laughs> really in there. Right. Yeah. So, so that's one of the things that they're getting into in this special it's like a series of short stories building on the labyrinth world which is exactly what i want because the movie i'm like eh, but the world that's super interesting to me so this book is something that i'm interested in checking out so i can like be in that world but not in the context of the film i can appreciate that yeah so uh, who's yeah who's publishing this oh boy um boom studios is publishing oh okay Interesting. That that sounds actually like it might be better then. Uh, I watched this movie for the first time like a couple months ago when Jordan lent, lent it to me because it came up in conversation that I had never seen it. And there was like a head turn, you know, like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And so that's how I ended up with the disc in my hands. So I had the same kind of response where I think if I was little when I first saw it, I would be way more into it. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a, an absolute fairy tale but the pacing is weird and yeah. the story is weird and like just all of it mm-hmm. is weird but the yeah. world is really cool and the visuals are amazing yes puppets creepy puppets creepy puppets weird wigs on david bowie yep uh yeah what more do you need spandex yeah. glitter everywhere <laughs> <laughs> well i am excited for of course a batman comic book coming out this week yet another one uh batman creature of the night number one this is actually a four-issue miniseries uh, written by Kurt Busiek, art by John Paul Leone, and this seems like a sort of companion piece to a book that Kurt Busiek wrote back in 2004 called Superman's Secret Identity, and that was a four-issue miniseries that Busiek wrote with uh, art by Stuart Immonen, and in that book, it's one of my very favorite Superman stories. It's about Superman... It's that it's about Superman the character. So it's set in our real world, a world where Superman is a fictional character but doesn't really exist. The Superman comics, you know, everyone knows Superman. And there's a teenage boy named uh, cheekily by his parents, Clark Kent, who hates that name and can't believe his parents would name him that. But when he turns 13, he finds out he can fly. So the whole book is him realizing, I have these powers, I have to use them the way that Superman does. So the whole book is about the idea of Superman being more important than the character actually existing in a sense. And I've always appreciated that idea. It's like, we live in a world where we have all these stories about heroes and people that do the right thing. Yet every quote unquote realistic portrayal of superheroes is someone that's always doubting themselves. Like, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? Should I do this? And the idea is, well, yeah, you should do what the characters in the stories tell you to do. And that's to save everyone and be a hero. So, uh, Kirby Usyk is going to do the same thing, I guess, with Batman this time, with Batman Creature of the Night. And the synopsis is you have a young kid named Bruce Wainwright. His parents die in a violent crime. 
and he has no way to express his grief, but suddenly he notices a strange creature in the streets of Gotham. So it's a real world take on Batman. And I just, I've always kind of liked the idea of that. It's like, you know, when you watch like a zombie movie and you see the zombies and the characters in the movie is like, oh, they're walkers or they don't call them zombies. It's like, haven't you seen a zombie movie? They exist, right? So I like the idea of a take on a quote unquote real world situation where you do have all these decades of superhero stories. So if someone does have superpowers or does want to do something, they they know what to do, right? They have all the background. They've done their research in a sense. That That is a really interesting concept because they are like, especially when you're talking about comics geared towards kids, they are very pointedly trying to teach you lessons and teach you things about the world. And then how do people act on that would be an interesting story. I, I, I want to read the part of the story where he discovers his enormous trust fund. And it's this real coming of <laughs> right. age, coming of bat cloak moment for him. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can do anything because I'm rich. Great. Yeah. <laughs> This month's Pick of the Month is Hilda and the Troll by Luke Pearson, a.k.a. Hilda Folk, because this has been published under two different titles. And Kara actually brought this up as our idea, and I had read it, I want to say two years ago, but I'm not actually sure. I read it when it was Hilda Folk, before it got republished. So that was a while ago. And I was excited to revisit it, uh, because I read it back when I wasn't thinking as critically about comics and comic art, and... I remember thinking that, oh, this is so just a quick, quick little story. I would have loved this as a little kid, but not really spending much time looking at it. And it was really interesting to revisit. And I'm interested to hear what you guys thought of it. Yeah, um, I I knew this character because there was a Hilda comic that came out this year for the free comic book day. And I actually grabbed it and I really enjoyed it, but I didn't do much research into the previous versions or previous you know, books about Hilda. So I was kind of glad it got suggested as well because I wanted to go back and read more of this stuff. I really like Luke Pearson's artwork. It's so beautiful. This. And so I guess maybe to give a little bit of background, you have Hilda who's um, you know a young girl living in sort of a uh, picturesque you know countryside. I'm not sure what what a country this is supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be Iceland. When he's talked about it, he has talked about how he was, he went on a family trip to Norway and got a lot of inspiration there and got really into their mythology and folklore. And then he did a Mm -hmm. class project where he had to do a map of Iceland for an art project. And he did that, like essentially a map of Icelandic folktales. And so it's kind of incorporating that whole thing. So it's a very Scandinavian vibe um, and and pulling a lot from their mythology. Yes, I, I appreciate any book that opens up the first like double page spread you see is just a giant map know, laying right? out the location. <laughs> you know, it's very, very Tolkien esque in a way. So you have yeah. all the different areas that Hilda's going to explore, and it kind of sets the tone for the story. And I like the way that uh, Pearson's artwork sort of—it's not the typical fantasy artwork or story, story tale, fairy tale type artwork. It is a very cartoony, and I don't 
I don't use that term as a pejorative sense. It is a cartoonist approach to those types of characters in that setting. And I really enjoyed it because of that. Yeah, it actually, the art style sort of reminded me, not that it looked the same, but it gave me the same feel as Over the Garden Wall, the animated series from Cartoon Network. The, it was like a miniseries a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it was that same kind of thing where it's very stylized, but not in a... In a beautiful, not childish way, if that makes any sense. Like, it wasn't right. quick and amateurish. You know how we kind of mass produce a lot of kids' media now? And, like, kids don't care. They just want, you know, more octonauts or something. Um, <laughs> and so it just gets churned out. And so this is a very, it is very stylized, but very thoughtful and beautifully done. I, gosh, I, so I wish that this was around when I was little. I would have been so into it. Um, it reminded me, so Hilda is this really bold, adventurous, like impatient and curious little girl, right? And she reminded me of a lot of the heroines I really enjoyed as a kid, but without all of the uh, sensibilities that kind of kept those girls in check. So like Heidi and Alice from Alice in Wonderland and um, Anne of Green Gables and uh, Laura Ingle from Little House on the Prairie, like all those like kind of spunky type characters, except in this in with Hilda, you don't have any of those limiting gender norm kind of crap that gets thrown into when weaved into a lot of those stories. Yeah. Um, so she is never sewing by the fire or anything like that. I think that the most um, indicative set of panels about her as a character is where she's like, she asked her mom if she could spend the night sleeping outside in the tent because it's going to rain and she wants to hear the raindrops on the tent above her. And she comes into breakfast the next day and her mom's like, you slept well? And Hilda's like, well, the wind shook the tent all night. It was cold, wet, overall pretty traumatic, but such is the life of the adventurer. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> like, like, like goes back to eating her breakfast and I was like, yeah get it girl yeah like she's this character that likes to go be a little frightened she goes out looking for adventure looking for that thrill and pearson does a really good job with color showing her emotions so like when she's feeling Mm -hmm. calm and in control your his color palette palette is a lot of muted blues and grays when she's feeling safe like even when she's wandering out in this landscape of mountains and forests and everything right all on her own because she's got her sketch pad in her satchel in her pet fox and it's awesome um and then when she's getting like nervous like with the rain on the tent and stuff like that you get the red coming out um for that heightened action and drama where she's like <gasps> excited but anxious but excited you know that kind of thing and it was so beautifully done and that's one of those things i didn't look at before but when i came back to it i think i noticed color more just because some of the colors were changed so she has a pet fox named twig and twig has antlers that's super cute uh and the first version twig was blue the same color blue as her hair and they chose to turn him white in this version and it was a good choice it makes her it draws the eye to her more it brings out um the color around it more like the blue in a lot of scenes because it was the two of them they took up so much of the space you got a lot more blue tone which changed the emotional feel of some of the panels so I thought that was a really good choice and an interesting one. And I think that's where I started looking at what they were doing with color a little bit more. Hmm. That's interesting because I ended up, the library copy I got is the original print pressing, I guess, because I have the blue blue wolf or blue fox, blue fox. in my book. Yeah. So that's huh. interesting. So what did you think? Yeah, like 
it's interesting because that's also a different size format they they uh yeah. brought this up to like a european size uh formatting which is that much bigger floppier kind of thing um <laughs> which for the which first, i love so much and it works right? so well for this story it does and <laughs> i i'm i want to keep reading because i'm wondering if he changes how he does panel layouts once he has more space well, this it's interesting because I think this hardcover I have is it's about the same size. If you've read any of the Tintin books, yeah, it's about the same size as that. So, it it is bigger than the typical uh, comic book, um, and probably about the same size as like a you know an illustrated kids book or something. But um, so, what's the difference between this one's your big. version then in terms of size? It's, it's like big. even bigger. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, it's it's big and tall. You, you know, have you seen like the Valerian trades, like that yeah, size okay. format where it's tall, it's wide, it's just a lot more space. And then Got the it. publisher um, did a really nice job. It's like a a nice heavy page stock with a nice matte finish, which really were <laughs> like brings out the color, and it's just well put together in your hand. It's not like one of these. With that size format, sometimes you get the really flimsy feeling books that are just kind of all floppy yeah. and magazine-ish kind of feeling in your hands. And this one's a nice, solid, um, good-to-the-touch book. Interesting. Which is okay. good because it's for kids. They destroy a floppy. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I think that would suit it well because Pearson obviously isn't trying to do like a picture book. Right. I mean, he has a very traditional cartoonist sense of action and layout. And even though there's lots of pages that are sort of like one big image or, you know, only have a couple panels, the way that the action is portrayed, the reactions of Hilda and the other characters, it is very traditional cartooning style. So I think having more space to really explore that would be interesting. Yeah, I think so too. I also like, um, he makes a really pointed use of when he uses a frame on a panel or not. So mm-hmm. some, like when you're kind of, there's one layout um, where it's essentially a big picture of her walking through this field and it's, she's out on her adventure with her satchel and her fox and her notepad and she's going, right? She's finding what there is to find. And there's kind of this um, montage of little blips of the little creatures she's found along the way um so there's the little insets basically but they're kind of blurred into the whole scene so it's this very like traversing through everything without the real breaks and i thought that was really beautifully done yeah and it really makes your eye sort of scan across the page and you know you really have to take time to take it all in right captures the scope of what she's seeing too so uh when i suggested that we read this book for november it's um it's because i really thought that it would be cool to read a book that to me feels kind of evocative of this transition between fall and winter yes it's like mm-hmm. hilda's very like like going on adventures but she's cozily wrapped up but it's like it's just it's a cozy book like when you're reading it it kind of feels like a hug like it does <laughs> i think part of that is like the scandinavian feel to it too and like the color palette like mm-hmm. it's just that very cozy fireside big old woods that kind of feel yeah yeah it was a good pick yeah and like i was really like wanting that because um so i I moved to california a couple months ago and the seasons are not like they are in the east so (laughs) it's like been kind of thrown by that and i wanted something that felt a little more familiar and it turns out that it's like perfect that we're talking about this book 
today um i'm actually up in portland oregon and there's like a light rain falling outside and like the sky is that lovely like fall gray and like but i'm inside and warm and cozy and talking about this cozy book and it's just like perfect yep yep fall is my favorite for that exact reason there's a great moment where hilda is she's sleeping outside in her tent when we talked about that but the way that she describes it just really struck me and it's that precociousness that it almost, almost seems almost too eloquent for a kid, but it's exactly what a kid would think about it, if that makes sense. When she says, nothing makes you appreciate the feeling of being snug more when your protection is canvas thin. A million assaults on my coziness thwarted noisily every time. You just see the pitter-patter of the rain on the roof of her tent. And it's such a beautiful way of phrasing that. It's like, yeah, I, there's a very thin layer protecting me from the elements, and that makes me appreciate my comfort and coziness even more. Yeah, it's just, I, I there was not a bad part of this book, but that was one of my favorites. Um, I yeah. I did get the feeling that I was like seeing Hilda the way Hilda sees her. Like that was very pointed kind of thing. You're kind of experience her, her world through her eyes, even though it's not yeah. like first person. And I think that kind of gets to that point. So on Thanksgiving, I could not talk and my... My, I'm at I'm at my brother's house and he had like a lot of friends over and some of them were talking about comics because they've just started taking a comics class where they're learning how to do autobiographical comics. Huh. And they're not comics people. And but like they were interested in it as an art form for self-expression and when I like brought my copy of Hilda and the Troll out to be like non-verbally like look I'm into comics too they like knew who Luke Pearson was so this was like a mind-blowing thing where I was like oh right you can have a relationship with comics but not be a comics person huh yeah hmm (laughs) so this book gave me that unexpected moment like oh right you can like a thing but not have it totally consume your existence (laughs) (laughs) well I I don't understand how comics couldn't just be all you think about but i guess each their own and i uh when i first read this i actually went on and read um the other books in the series and this is the only one i think so far that's really just like mostly set in the countryside because in the next book in the series after this she and her mom moved to the city and she has to do that adjustment Mm -hmm. but i really do like these like the open space that pearson creates visually and with words yeah there is something about the way he portrays the landscape that Hilda's in and like Kate was, you know, hinting at, you kind of see it through her eyes in a way. And, you know, I like the way that he portrays her not being, being enchanted by the world, but there's all sorts of mythological creatures, but it doesn't phase her in a sense, you know, like one of the first scenes in the book is this tiny little, like, uh, anthropomorphic log walks into their house and they're just like oh yeah that's the woodman who just walks in here he they don't freak out wood. about it like yeah. oh yeah that's what happens for now and again just yeah, you know just uh shoo him back outside he'll be fine or the and then sea you spirit find, the sea spirit moment always gets me there's like this yeah. little mound of water going down the stream and then he'll just like oh sea spirit it must have gotten lost out in the fjords and then like the next panel she's like i wonder if it matters so oh, well like goes about my day yeah yeah so it's there is something you know yeah I like the way that Pearson captures that childlike sense of being uh, enraptured by the wonders of the world, but also not thinking that they're that outrageous because you see them all the time in a sense. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It evokes that childhood, like the kind of separate world that little kids live in in their imagination that's kind of meshed with the real world. And then as you start to grow up, you get a stronger and stronger boundary between the two. And um, it'll be interesting to see how he, or Kara's already seen, I guess, how he has her grow up. Um, Because I would imagine moving to the city is pulling her away from that landscape some. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the other small detail that really stood out to me, too, is you see Hilda take her sketchbook with her as she goes out to explore. So, you know, she's an artist. She's actually even wearing a beret while she goes out, you know, to highlight the point. That's how you know. That she's creative. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she, when you see, you'll just see like little glimpses of what she's drawing. And they're not, they're very kid-like drawings. Like they're not, she's not this amazing, you know, super detailed artist. She's just drawing what she sees. And it's very simple and sort of crude. And I think I like that because... You know, as someone who, as a kid, would try to draw, you get frustrated if your drawings aren't that, don't look that nice. You know, if they're sort of crude and messy. And I think for a lot of people, that is, that artistic spark or creative spark is sort of like, uh, not beaten out of them, but like you kind of lose that as you get older because, oh, I'm not a very good artist. And I like the way that Hilda's just like, yeah, I'm just drawing what I think and what I see. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It is kind of crude and simple. I just kind yeah. of like that little detail that Pearson throws in there. He also throws in, at the end, um, you get that view of her bedroom, and mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of like little Easter eggs for her adventures and what she's going to do and you know in the next books and all that stuff, which I think is really fun. He doesn't, as much as he respects his heroine and you know treats her like a spunky, you know, whatever, like gender's not important kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. and really... fills out her character in her world and um he i feel like gives the same respect to his child audience like obviously we're not kids but like that kind of wasn't it like called gravity falls the same kind of thing with a kid's cartoon where they're giving them easter eggs and all these things and like essentially treating kids like they can think about the material and Mm. engage with it and i think that's really nice yeah i think that's really nice when people do that i will definitely be looking up the next uh, if my library has them. Yeah, so so I'm assuming that the, um, as you mentioned here in our show notes, that there will be a Netflix series based on these books coming out shortly? Yeah, it's planned for early 2018. Um, they're doing a 12-episode animated series based on the first four books. Uh, book number mm-hmm. five is out, but it came out in September. Uh, so that's okay. pretty recent. So that is being done by the same studio who does Octonauts. So I don't know how... It, if it's if they're like gearing it towards really little kids or what, uh, maybe they're trying something mm-hmm. different. My dream would be the exact same style as the books, like color and everything, just animated. Like that would be incredible. Like give me another mm-hmm. over the garden wall, but it's Hilda. Um, but I really doubt, based on who's doing it, that it will be like that at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's interesting is you know we're three people that sort of think about comics as a medium very deeply. And we really didn't talk about the story so much as the details of the art, the way the story's told, the Easter eggs, the use of the form, right. and all the things that probably would get lost in an animated adaptation of the book. Yeah, yeah. I guess to that point, um, so spoilers if you haven't uh, already read this, but the story is very brief. She essentially um, is living in a cabin out in the wilderness um, with her mother and she goes with her on an adventure with her sketch pad and she finds a troll which she's been reading about and she's read 
uh, that you should put a bell on them. And it comes alive at night when she goes after she goes home. And turns out she didn't read far enough into the book. And it's actually really cruel to put bells on trolls that it's now an outdated and frowned upon practice. So she helps it take it off. And that's essentially the total of the book. Um, so it's, <laughs> yes. it's very brief. It's more like exploring her world. And like Kara was talking about with the individual creatures she sees along the way as she's walking through her world. But it's not um, particularly pro- plot driven, which makes it, it'll be interesting to see what they do in a series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like they might go more into the little side notes, like I mentioned the sea spirit, or I really enjoyed the part where a giant just like crashes through the wood and he'll just like, a giant, at least he knows where he's going. And he's like looking at a map and he's yes. just like, everything looks the same. <laughs> yes, exactly. That would be really nice. I That would be ideal, I think. Um, interesting side note, Pearson uh, is a storyboarder for cartoons. He did storyboards for a few seasons of, uh, what is it, Adventure Time? So he has experience with these things, and maybe he will be working on the series. I have not read much about that, but that would be awesome if he was really involved with it. I think that would really improve the quality versus just selling the rights to the character, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's interesting that topic has come up a few times on this episode, the idea of how you translate things to other mediums. And I think, as I mentioned, we were pointing out things that wouldn't translate easily, but, you know, if someone is like Pearson is adept or adept at doing storyboards that would lend itself very easily to a, an animated adaptation of his work. Now I'm just getting distracted thinking about what Hilda's voice would sound like. <laughs> oh, right. They're going to have to change the dialogue because you couldn't have a little girl voice saying the lines she has without it coming off really weird. Like it works because it's in your head and you're reading it. Like essentially it's her, her internal voice. I don't know. Maybe it would be fine. I don't know. This I'm is excited like kind for of remind. I mean, now that you've brought that up, it kind of reminds me of the the Peanuts characters. Like those, they're all like little kids. They're all like six or seven years old, but they all speak like little philosophers half the time. And on film, like it does still kind of work because they does. like take because mm-hmm. they take it seriously. Yes. Yeah. I think that's that's the key. There is to treat even though it's like a quote-unquote kid's story or a kid's book or a cartoon or a comic, you have to treat it with a certain amount of respect. And I think as an adult, I watch a lot of comics or cartoons aimed at kids, and they feel kind of insulting. It's like, kids can think more than this. Kids are more creative than this. Kids can have bigger vocabularies than this. Like, we don't have to make everything down to the lowest denominator. You can make kids reach a little. They will like it. They Mm -hmm. will do it, you know. Mm. You're just making me think of like, the Looney Tunes cartoons that go out of their way to bring in opera and classical music. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. They make like whole plots revolve around like opera and miniature and stuff like that. It's like, you know, you can bring, you can mix high and low art. And as long as you're taking it all seriously, like not like taking yourself too seriously, but taking the material seriously, you can come out with something really beautiful and meaningful that will last generations. So if you're interested in checking out uh, Hilda and the Troll yourself, you can look for it. Again, there's two different titles, which is kind of confusing. It's Hilda and the Troll, or the original one was Hilda Folk. And there are those slight differences we talked about, but they're both by Luke Pearson, obviously. Um, And I don't think there's enough of a difference to really worry about it. Um, They're published by Flying Eye Books, 
and you can find them at your library, your local comic book shop. Uh, this has get, gotten big enough now that you can probably find them at Barnes & Noble. I, we have not been able to find them digitally, so they, they probably aren't there. Maybe they will be. And also keep an eye out for your Netflix uh, for there's not like a release date yet, but it's looking like early 2018 is when this will pop up. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I Thank you very much for recommending this book, Karis. That one I probably would have picked up on my own other than having read the free comic book day one, but I'm, I'm definitely interested enough to read the follow-up books. And I, I'm very curious about the Netflix series too now. I just want all the merch it's going to bring. So many of these characters are <laughs> so like plushyable. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I just want like a sweater with twig on it or something. Yeah, I kind of wonder how much of the decision to make it a show was based on how merchable it is for children's stuff. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's a whole other topic, I think. Well, and it's also um, basically a modern day Matilda story. Matilda? No, Madeline. Madeline, where she's going on all her adventures. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but great stuff. Again, I, I, I think it's easy maybe to look at a book like this and think, oh, it's just for kids. But as we've shown, there's so much more depth to just the story. Um, you can really appreciate the artwork in a book like this. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I think that wraps up our discussion for our pick for Book of the Month, the Goodreads group. Um, but if you're interested in interacting with us and the show, we are all on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Polly. Kara, where can we find you? At K-A-R-A-S-Z-A-M. And I'm at Kate Scotchless, which is hard to spell. So go to IRCV Podcast and uh, <laughs> scroll down. I'm on there. Yeah, perfect. Uh, you can also follow the show itself at IRCB Podcast. We, re- we post links to the episodes. We retweet stuff we like. And we post polls, or I should say Mike posts polls every week. I think the most current one was oh god i'm blanking who is the best bat song anyway. i think something like that i think yeah that was last week and then i'll very quickly look up what this week's was but they're fun polls of course mike writes them so there's a lot of x-men content to them <laughs> <laughs> he's biased <laughs> yeah uh this week it was which big two comics event are you thankful for uh well there you go so you can vote on that and find all the links to the show there you can also uh, visit the Goodreads group. Uh, that's where we talk about our book of the month. We have one that's picked by fans of the show, contributors to the Goodreads group, and then one that's picked by us, the podcasters. And there are other things there. You can talk about what books you've been reading this week, what books you're reading this month. A lot of fun over there. And, of course, Kate is the leader of the Goodreads group. So thank you for managing all of that, Kate. Hey, hey. And then ircbpodcast.com, that is our website. We post links to all the episodes. We have our uh, pick of the week there every Tuesday. We post what books we're looking forward to. And if there's any books that we mentioned in the show that you forget the title of, they're all listed there in the show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends about us. You can email us at ircb at destroythesibe.org, which, if you look at it without the dot org, is destroy the cyborg which i love (laughs) Um, please reach out to us we love talking to you you probably listened to this episode not to hear us talk but to hear those melodious magical sounds that come with all of our episodes that's infinity shred they're the best uh check them out you can also check out xander on twitter and give him a shout out for being a wizard who makes a sound like like actual professional human beings. I don't know how he does it. It's like we give him jabbering, yammering nonsense and he makes it like perfect. 
every week. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to us, for interacting with us, for being there, for being fans. You're the best. We love you.